Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast where a middle-aged man plays adventure game books for your amusement. And my amusement. My name is HJ Doom and this episode I'm presenting to you a playthrough of the first fighting fantasy gamebook with a modern world setting. Steve Jackson's seminal House of Hell. This book is amazing. My playthrough doesn't really do it justice for reasons I'll sort of get into at the end, but I hope you'll enjoy listening to it regardless. I'm going to have a lot to say about this one, so I'll keep this brief. House of Hell was written by Steve Jackson, with internal art by Tim Sell. It was first published in 1984 by Puffin Books. Now, House of Hell is a horror game book, and I know some people don't get on with that sort of thing. I work hard to try and keep this podcast suitable for listeners of all ages, so I'd be remiss if I didn't put a small content warning before we get started. With that out of the way, let's dive in. House of Hell is a little bit different to other fighting fantasy game books we've played, because in addition to your skill, stamina and luck, you also have to roll 1d6 and add 6 to create a stat called Max Fear. Now your fear starts at zero, and as the adventure goes on, you get given fear points, and if your fear hits your max fear, then you've been frightened to death, which is just awesome. In addition, you start with no equipment at all of any description, not even a weapon, so you have to reduce your initial skill by three until such time as you find a weapon with which to take on the various awful denizens of the House of Hell. Now, House of Hell is set in the modern day. I say modern day, it's set in 1985, which is over 35 years ago now. So I've decided to call my character something a bit more modern than I would usually do, and I've called them Jangle Binge Mallet. They have a skill of 10, a stamina of 20, a luck of 12, and a max fear of 11. So they're in pretty good shape to start with. Obviously that skill of 10 reduced to 7 until such time as we find a weapon. Let's get rambling and dive straight in. The rain spatters the windshield relentlessly. You can see no more than a watery gloom as you strain forwards over the steering wheel to see the road ahead. Although the wipers flap valiantly they are fighting a losing battle as the rain drives harder and harder. Your foot eases off the accelerator. The headlights struggle to light up the road. Damn! You curse the white-haired old man who sent you off along this bumpy track. Probably he meant the second turning on the left, or even a right turning, the old fool. Perhaps this is his idea of a joke. After all, didn't you notice a mischievous glint in his eye? Something vaguely sinister? Oh, but what sort of nonsense is this? So you've taken a wrong turn and got caught in a downpour in the night. The rain will ease off soon. It can't possibly keep up this deluge for long. And then you'll be able to watch out. You spin the wheel frantically to the left to avoid the figure who from nowhere shows up in the headlights. The car bumps and jolts as it bounces over the rocky roadside and thumps into a ditch. You collect your thoughts. You are unhurt, but shaken. Then you remember what has happened. The body. You must have hit the figure which appeared. There was no way you could have avoided him. You spring out of the car, praying that he is still alive. Your clothes soak up the rain as you hobble back to the road. In the darkness, it's difficult to see anything, but there is no sign of a body. You consider the situation. Are you certain that it was some one and not a trick of the light? Yes. You can remember the arms held up in fright as the car collided and the look of anguish on his face. His face! There was something familiar about that face. A man you recognised. An old man with white hair. Your heart leaps. No. Impossible. With a shiver of fear, you race back to the car, jump inside, force the key into the ignition and twist it violently. The starter coughs, splutters 
and dies. You hit the key again, but this time a single shudder is all the engine can manage. You grasp the wheel with your hands and shake it desperately as if to force some life into the car, but the battery is dead. Your car is certainly not budging from the ditch tonight. Your situation is hopeless. But now the plight of the car is paramount. Where can you get help? You passed a garage at Mingleford, but that was some 20 miles away. As if in answer, a light appears in the distance. Someone has switched on a bedroom light. What a stroke of luck! It was at least 15 miles back that you passed the last house, and you happen to have broken down just a short distance from someone's home. Yep, nothing bad could possibly happen as a result of this. You button up your coat and open the door. From outside the car, you can see the building more clearly. Just ahead, on the left, a drive winds up to a large house. It's a good five-minute walk away. By the time you reach it, you'll be drenched. But how else can you call the garage? You can't afford to miss tomorrow's appointment. No, go on, you must. Anyway, you'll probably be able to dry off inside after phoning the garage. You slam the door, turn up your collar and set off for the house. A flash of lightning lights it up clearly for you, but in your preoccupation with the rain, the warning from above is wasted on you. The house is old, very old, and in a shocking state of repair. The light in the window is flickering, most likely an oil lamp, certainly not electric. You don't notice a fact that might have turned you back anyway. There is no telephone line going to the house. As you climb the steps to the front door, little do you realise what fate has in store for you. Tonight is going to be a night to remember. Well, that is possibly the best intro we've ever had to a fighting fantasy book, and it dovetails really neatly with the strange art of the cover uh, by celebrated uh, UK artist Ian Miller, who's particularly gothic and overwrought style, complete with strange faces leering out of trees is so appropriate for this kind of material. I really like how it's telling us, the player, things that the character doesn't know. That's an interesting dramatic technique we've not seen used before. I like it. It's uh, an interesting way to acknowledge that these are kind of horror film cliches that we, the audience, I think even a young audience, would be somewhat familiar with. You climb the creaking steps up to the front door and pause to catch your breath. Even though you ran all the way up the drive from the car, you are soaked through. Your feet are particularly wet. Judging by the number of puddles you stepped into in the dark, the drive needs a small fortune spending on repairs. But under the porch, you are out of the storm, and you brush the rain from your clothes before turning to the door. The rain is still pelting down, but an eerie silence hangs in the air. No lights are on downstairs. You step back off the porch to check the upstairs window, which attracted your attention earlier. Nothing. No lights. The whole place seems to be deserted. But then you remember the time. It's five minutes to midnight. Everyone in the house has probably gone to bed. An owl hoots in the distance and a shiver runs down your spine. The situation is a little scary. Here you are in the middle of nowhere at some strange, run-down old house, about to wake up whoever lives inside at midnight. They certainly won't be too pleased, but... You have no choice if you are going to make your appointment tomorrow. You must reach a telephone to call for help. You step up to the front door. From the left-hand side of the house, a dull glow catches your attention. A light has been turned on. You breathe a sigh of relief. At least someone is awake. You consider your options. There is an elaborate knocker in the middle of the door and a bell pull hanging down to the right. Would you wrap the door with the knocker, pull the cord, or creep round the house to investigate the light. It's a testament to the effectiveness of the mood that this is creating that I am unnerved and freaked out by the thought of doing any of those things. I feel as though if I was playing this as a horror film protagonist, I think I'd just pull the cord. The gamer in me can't help thinking knowledge is power, so I'm going to creep around to investigate the light. You walk from the porch around the side of the house. A light is indeed on, and it's shining through a window at the back of the building. Do you wish to go round and see if you can see anything at this window? Or will you walk up to one of the other windows along the side wall to see whether you can enter the house without anyone knowing? I think we're going to have a peek in through that window. 
I think we're going to try and find out who's in the room. The lit window is next to a back door which leads into a kitchen. Voices are coming from the kitchen, but you cannot see anyone. Whoever is in there must be standing by the back wall out of sight. You strain to hear what is being said. There appear to be two people in the kitchen and they are talking excitedly. Master, he's getting ready. I'm starting to get excited. I've never been to one before. Do you think we may be visited? Another man's voice, rather more controlled, replies, You know, I'm having doubts about this whole affair. She is so young, and she came here in all innocence. I just don't know. The two men walk around the kitchen, and you can see them more clearly. They are both dressed in white gowns. One is a good deal younger than the other. Do you wish to knock on the door to see whether they will let you in, or will you wait and listen for a little longer? I think I will wait and listen for a little longer. These people, I'm going to say, are in some kind of evil cult. I've seen many evil cults in my time, and uh, yeah, I recognise the signs. So let's have a, a listen just to make sure. The younger man turns to the older one and angrily says, The master's teachings are not for the faint-hearted. You know of his power and his promise to us all. Perhaps you are no longer strong enough to stay with us. The older man turns away towards the window. He is hiding the look on his face, which is one of nervousness and fear. He realises that he has said the wrong thing. No, he stammers. I'll be all right, just a, a momentary weakness. Come, let's get on with the preparations. Together, the two men leave the kitchen, blowing out the candles on the way. You wonder what they were talking about. Now you must choose your next move. Will you try the kitchen door to see whether you can sneak inside? or go back round to the front and knock on the door. Being very English, I feel incredibly awkward and embarrassed at the thought of sneaking into even a pretty evil house. My instinct is always to knock politely. Now that might be the worst idea ever, but I think that's what I'm going to do. I just cannot bring myself to sneak into the back door of someone else's house uninvited, even though the kitchen might have a knife in that I could use as a uh, makeshift weapon. So yeah, we're going to go round to the front door out of sheer awkwardness. So we've knocked on the door and a few moments later, the door handle slowly turns and the door opens. Standing in the doorway is a tall man dressed in a dark suit with tails. His long face is solemn. Yes, he asks indignantly. You smile nervously and explain your situation. Your car has broken down. You need to reach a telephone. You're soaked to the skin. The man's face remains expressionless. Come in, he orders. The master is expecting you. Follow me. I'm assuming he's a butler, and that is what I imagine all butlers sound like. He leads you into a reception hall and tells you to sit down while he informs his master of your arrival. I don't know why I think that all butlers sound like that. I've seen every episode of Jeeves and Worcester and The Remains of the Day and quite a bit of Downton Abbey, but in my head that is still what butlers sound like. You sit down in a solid, carved chair and look around. The reception hall is certainly not what you would have expected from the outside. It is elegantly decorated, with rich tapestries and fine oak panels. A number of portraits line the walls. A sturdy 16th century table is set against one wall. Do you want to wait for your host to arrive? Study the paintings? Or hunt for a telephone. Well, knowledge is power, and we already know that there isn't a telephone because, cleverly, the book told us that in the intro. So again, if I was doing proper role-playing, I would clearly hunt for a telephone. But I feel like studying the paintings is a sensible thing to do. Also, again, the embarrassment of being found rummaging through another person's house looking for a telephone is more than my English soul can bear. So I think we will study the paintings. Three portraits are particularly interesting. Will you look at a beautiful young woman wearing a tiara? A middle-aged portly gentleman wearing half-moon glasses? Or an elderly woman with grey hair and a cold expression? I feel like the obvious thing to do is to look at the beautiful young woman. But I don't want to go down that road because I'm contrary. So I'm going to look at a middle-aged portly gentleman. You study the portrait of the Duke of Brewster, 1763 to 1828. A rather elegant sort of chap, you think, as you stare at him. Suddenly, you jump back. You could swear you saw his eyes move. 
A moment later, your suspicions are confirmed. His eyes are definitely moving, directing your attention towards one of the doors in the hall. What is happening? Your car breaks down and suddenly you're in an elegantly decorated, derelict house with moving portraits. Will you sit in the chair and wait for your host to return or try the handle on the door that the portrait is looking at? Or you may look at another painting. Okay, we're going to look at the door. You race across to the door and twist the handle. Ah! You stifle a scream and release the handle immediately as an electric shock runs up your arm. Lose two stamina points. Footsteps. Someone is coming. The tall man you met earlier walks in, opening the door for another tall man dressed in a purple smoking jacket. May I present Lord Kelnor, the Earl of Drummer? The butler announces. The Earl holds out his hand and you shake it. His grip is strong and his eyes pierce yours. His lips widen in a soft smile. You begin to tell him of your predicament, but he holds up his hand. A please. I can see that you have been caught in this filthy storm. Let us sit by the fire and we will see whether we can help. Franklins, tell the cook to prepare some food for our visitor. You protest that you do not wish to be of any trouble, but your host ignores you and leads you into a drawing room where a fire is burning. You take off your coat and sit down. The heat of the fire makes you feel comfortable once more. Franklins returns with two glasses of brandy. Will you relax, drink the brandy and ask if you can use the telephone, or will you wait to see what he asks you? There is a picture of uh, Lord Kelmore, and he seems to be wearing a kind of smoking jacket, and his face indicates, I would say, a certain Mephistophelian cast. And there's also a picture of the butler behind him, who looks like an ageing butler. Yeah, it's quite nice. Characterful artwork. So, are we going to relax and drink the brandy? I think not. I think we'll wait to see what he asks us. Your host is a little annoyed by your nervousness. Come, come, he says. There's no need to be afraid. Has your little accident caused you to lose your nerve? Drink your brandy. You'll soon forget your fears. As you watch him, your mind begins to play tricks on you. Is his expression one of genuine concern for your welfare? Or is there a hint of something secretive in his eyes and smile? You shiver, and your fear of the situation is evident. Add one fear point. That's our first fear point. So we're on fear one. A short while later, Franklin's appears. Your meal is served, sir, he says to the Earl. You both rise and go through to the dining room. The dining room looks magnificent, a long table stretching between two fine chairs, and it is laid with gleaming silvery cutlery. A rich red wallpaper covers the walls, and the room is lit by a sparkling chandelier bristling with candles, which hang from the ceiling. You take your seat, and the butler moves behind you to offer you wine. Will you take white wine or red wine? I don't know what food we're being served. How am I expected to choose between white wine or red wine when I don't know what the food pairing is. Only joking, I don't care at all about food pairings and I don't understand food pairings. I usually drink red wine. On this occasion, I feel like the red wine might be blood or something like that. So I'm going to go for the white wine for the cheap symbolism. The wine is dry and light, obviously a very expensive vintage. You see, it says that, but I literally cannot tell the difference between cheap wine and expensive wine, which is kind of handy if you're unemployed. Uh, the wine is dry and light, obviously a very expensive vintage, but there is a puzzling aftertaste which you cannot place. Perhaps there's a little sediment in the decanter. No, the taste is more like aspirin. Too late, you realise your wine has been drugged. You start to raise yourself from the table, but the effects are already taking hold. You stumble, fall back and crash to the floor. Consciousness fades. So we're off to a tremendous start. As always, high quality decision making being made by me at all times. You open your eyes, your head is spinning, and it is some time before you are fully aware of the fact that your hands and feet are bound. The room you are in is empty, but you work out a plan. You will hop over to the window, break the glass, and use it to cut yourself free. See, if I tried that in real life, I would lose fingers. Pulling yourself to your feet is awkward, but you manage it, and with a mixture of hops and shuffles, you arrive at the window. 
Outside, the wind is blowing the rain against the window panes. Will you go ahead and smash the window with your hands? Something of a risky business. Or will you instead test your luck? Oh, here's fun. So, we can, if we wish, use our luck. That's, uh, I've not seen that before at all. That's a very interesting little wrinkle. Treating luck as a resource which we have control of using. I will test my luck on this occasion because my luck is 12. So I literally cannot fail to test my luck. Luck now 11. Were you lucky or unlucky? If you were lucky, you managed to escape the splintering glass without harm. If you are unlucky, the glass cuts your wrist. Lose two stamina points. That's a really neat trick. You cut yourself free and massage your wrists to get the circulation moving again. Then you walk over to the door to try it. It is not locked. You try the handle, open it a little and look outside. Your room is on a first floor landing. Facing the door is a balustrade and looking over the banisters you can see the entrance hall below. To your left there are two doors in the corner of the landing which runs along to the right. Do you wish to go this way or looking to your right the landing runs past another door and then turns left? So it's a straight left-right decision and tradition demands that we always go left. So let's do that. You walk up to the two doors in the corner of the balcony. The one on your left is named Balthus and the one in front of you has no name. Do you wish to enter the Balthus room or would you rather go through the other door or ignore these doors and continue round the landing? I think, well, I can't. I can't ignore a reference to my favourite fighting fantasy book, Citadel of Chaos, where the villain is called Balthus Dyer, who is a wrong one, but I feel like I've got to at least have a peep in there. The room you have entered is bare. Pinstripe wallpaper covers the wall. A hearth is set in the centre of one wall, and on the mantelpiece there is a small wooden box. Curtains are pulled together along another wall, but they hang awkwardly, bulging at unnatural places. You wish to investigate the bulging curtains? Open the box on the mantelpiece or leave the room? I guess, first things first, I'm not turning my back on the bulging curtains. Uh, I've seen productions of Hamlet. Best case scenario, there is the king's wicked advisor lurking behind those curtains. Worst case scenario, it's a monster that's playing hide and seek. Let's find out. Slowly and quietly, you walk up to the curtain. There is no movement from it. You grab the left-hand curtain and fling it open. There is a full-length window behind which is barred from the outside. But nothing is hiding there. You take hold of the other curtain, but before you can move it, the bulges you've noticed come to life. From behind the curtain, a heavy blow hits you in the chest and knocks you backwards onto the floor. Lose two stamina points and add two fear points. So we're down to stamina 16, and we're now up to fear 3. You pick yourself up quickly, and the curtain slides to one side. A human figure steps out. Its skin is a dirty green colour. Its wide eyes stare at you, yet through you, its jaw gapes open to reveal a mouth half full of rotted teeth. It wears ragged clothes, and it is advancing towards you. Resolve your fight with this zombie. It's a lovely illustration of the zombie, complete with outstretched claw-like hand reaching out of the frame and suitably manky look and these staring eyes and rotting teeth. Yeah, it is very much what you think of when you think zombie gets the job done. It's got a skill of seven and a stamina of six, making it effectively as good at fighting as I am. And I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the zombie, but I have been reduced to 10 stamina points, which is pretty grim. Presumably I've got all kinds of zombie juice all over me. Do you wish to leave the room or investigate the box on the mantelpiece? I will investigate the box on the mantelpiece. The box rattles when you touch it. There's something solid inside. You undo the catch and open the lid. Inside you find a small key. You try the key in the door and it fits. The key turns and unlocks the door, allowing you to leave the room. You find you are in the corner of the landing and there is an unmarked door to your left. Do you wish to go through it or straight ahead you can see the main staircase leading downwards? I think we'll have a look in this door as well. I may only have 10 stamina points and an effective skill of 7, but I'm still going to try and get my rummage on. 
The door opens into a narrow passageway which ends at a window. There is a door halfway along the left-hand side, and a sign on the door identifies it as the Diabolus Room. Do you wish to try this door, or do you wish to investigate the window instead? If you're not keen to do either, you can go back through the door and continue along the landing. I'm going to give the Diabolus Room a miss. That sounds like absolutely asking for trouble. So let's go and have a look at the window. What could possibly be wrong with a window? Curtains are drawn across the window and you approach cautiously. You gingerly pat the folds in the curtain and are relieved to find nothing there. Although they seem to be safe, you are still on your guard as you draw them apart. Nice little callback to the hide-and-seek zombie. But it still makes sense even if you didn't go into that room, which is clever writing. As you draw the curtains apart, a thunderclap booms outside and makes you jump. But you are safe. A perfectly ordinary window is uncovered. However, the heavy iron bars on the outside are a little worrying. Through the window, you can see nothing but the rain running down the pane of glass. But curiously, the rain is avoiding one area. Could it be that the wind is blowing the rain away from this corner? You bend down to take a closer look. Written in the condensation which has formed on the glass is a message. You repeat three words. Mordana im Abaddon. You repeat this message to yourself and then rub it off the window in case anyone else should see it. This message may be useful to you and you will realise when it is. If later in the adventure you want to use the message, turn to reference 88. Do not turn to 88 now. Now you must head back to the landing and turn left. So we've found a message. Mordana in Abaddon. Feels like we were due a slice of luck. I have to say, I am feeling a genuine sense of trepidation as I pick my way cautiously through the House of Hell. A short distance further on, you come to the top of the main staircase which leads downwards. Immediately opposite the staircase is an unmarked door. Do you wish to go downstairs? Try the unmarked door, or will you continue round the landing? Well, we are committed to trying to find some kind of weapon, at the very least. Ideally, some kind of roast dinner we can eat to get over being beaten about the face and body by a zombie. Uh, so I think we're looking at the unmarked door on this occasion. You step into a small storeroom and close the door behind you. There are shelves on the left and right walls on which various household objects are stored. In front of you, in the wall facing the door, is another door. What do you want to do? Will you search through the things on the shelves? Try the door opposite or return to the landing? Well, things on shelves, music to my ears. Let's, let's have a, a good rummage. Various items of crockery, cutlery and food are kept in the storeroom, including a sharp meat knife, which you might like to hide under your coat to use as a weapon in the future. It will allow you to add three skill points in a fight. Excellent. Well, that's tremendous news. Oh, it would have been so much easier if I could have shivved that zombie. There are also several cloves of garlic, which you may also take. I mean, good for vampires. Also good for the circulation. Yes, I will take some garlic. And there is also an unlabeled bottle of white liquid on another shelf. Do you want to drink the liquid? I mean, I feel like we've got garlic and a knife out of this encounter. I would be really pushing my luck if I started glugging the liquid. Um, yeah, I'm going to go on the basis that pushing my luck on this room is probably a bad plan. Let's try the door at the back of the storeroom instead rather than returning to the landing you step out of the storeroom into a hallway to your left the hallway ends at a door which leads into the shaitan room if you wish to try the door you can almost opposite is the mammon room which you can also enter if you're not interested in either of these you can go back to the landing i like the way the rooms are all named after devils of folklore um makes it feel like a theme hotel now obviously Shaitan is the Islamic name uh, for the devil, and Mammon is a demon associated with money. Love of Mammon being the root of all evil. So, what do we fancy? Um, I, mean, I don't really want to go in either of them, they sound really bad, but... Oh, emboldened by my kitchen knife, I'm going to try the Mammon room. Um, no particular reason. The room you enter looks well lived in. 
There's a bedroom and a large bed, covered with a yellow bedspread, dominates the room. Clothes are strewn around the floor and a tap is running in a wash basin in the corner. The clothes suggest it is a woman's room, but no one is about. Will you call out to announce yourself in case anyone is in the room? Search around to see what you can find or leave the room. Um, I mean being in a strange woman's room. Awkward. There is a surprising amount of awkwardness in this story alongside the gothic horror. I might just rummage through her stuff. You walk over to the mantelpiece and study the trinkets scattered along it. A couple of lacquer boxes and a picture frame with no picture flank a large plant pot with a broad-bladed plant growing in it. In the grate below are several lumps of coal resting on a bed of paper, a fire all ready to light. But something else is in the grate. A black and white photograph has been thrown on the coals. Do you wish to check the contents of the boxes or pick up the photograph to look at it? Oh, the photograph, please. That seems like a clue. You sit on your haunches and reach for the photograph. As you pick it up, you feel a heavy thud on the top of your head. You slump to the floor, dazed, and the plant pot, which came crashing down on your head, smashes on the floor. You must lose three stamina points. So, stamina now down to seven. You hear a rustling from the curtains and straighten up to look towards the window. You shudder with fright as the curtains open before you. Just as quickly, they shut again. Then there is silence. Surprising amount of curtain-based horror. You walk slowly over and grab them. But they are perfectly ordinary curtains. You must add one fear point for the shock. Now do you wish to leave the room or try and work out the mystery of the curtains? I'm going to go out on a limb and say we have ourselves a poltergeist. So I think probably scarpering will be the best bet. You may now proceed either by turning right and trying the door of the shaitan room, or by turning left and following the passage which bears right past two rooms labelled Asmodeus and Iblis, and then rejoin the landing. Let's have a look in the shaitan room. Yeah, we'll have a look in the shaitan room. I mean, these all appear to be, I don't know, guest bedrooms. There is a sort of evil travel lodge feeling to it. A lot of the rooms seem very similar. I guess most bedrooms are actually pretty similar. You open the door and peer around. The room is a large, elegantly decorated bedroom, as I expected, with a four-poster bed in one corner. There is a three-piece suite in the centre of the room facing a fireplace. A fire is smouldering, but the room appears to be empty. On the far side of the room are two more doors. You wish to go in or quickly close the door and leave the room. So, I mean, we're going to go in. We're going to go in. Of course we're going to go in. You know how it works by this point. I think in general, on a first playthrough of a fighting fantasy book, it's best not to overthink the decisions you make. Not that I've ever overthought important decisions, but I do think just go with your gut. And some of these rooms are obviously going to be full of nonsense. Some of them might have something useful in, like the knife and the garlic. And there's no real way of telling, because they're all named after demons. You step inside and close the door quietly behind you. A soft click comes from the lock. As you step forward, a voice greets you. You look around, but you can see no one. The voice continues. So, our visitor is inquisitive, eh? Or are you trying to leave the house? Perhaps our hospitality is not to your liking. Maybe you would like to see some more, shall we say, amusements? The eerie voice makes you nervous. Add one fear point. Fear now up to five, almost halfway through our fear total. You want to stay and talk to the voice or make a hasty exit back through the door. I have a feeling that the door behind me is locked, so I think I'm going to talk to the voice and try and brave it out rather than turn around to flee and discover, presumably to my absolute horror, that I can't get out. In front of you is a high-backed armchair facing the fire with its back towards you. A figure raises itself from the chair and turns to face you. The man is tall and pale with jet black hair. He wears a long black cape fastened across the neck with a gold clasp. Yes, he says. So far you have fared well against the occupants of the house, but I believe you will find that your run of luck has come to an end. Step forward. So I can see you. Uh, there's a picture of the man getting out of his chair. And it really just emphasises that this gentleman is almost certainly a vampire. He's got the dark eyes, the pronounced widow's peak, and the dark eyebrows. And a slightly smug expression. 
that puts me in mind of a banker. Will I step forward as he asks or prepare to attack the man? I mean, I'm hoping that somehow I can stuff some garlic into his face. So I guess we will prepare to attack him. Aha, yes. How will you attack the man? With colourful language, please. No, uh, we've got a choice between a weapon, uh, which we've got, and something else. We do have something else. We've got some garlic. So we'll go for the garlic. You pull the garlic out of your pocket and hold it up before the man. His expression changes from one of confidence to a look of fright. As you suspected, this vampire cannot bear to be near raw garlic. Sweat breaks out on his forehead and he backs off towards the bed. He is heading for one of the other doors in the room. You hurriedly look round, trying to decide the best way out. Will you try the door on the left? Or the door on the right, which he was heading for? Or will you turn round and dash quickly for the door you came in through? Not turning my back on him. That's definitely not happening. Also, I feel like the door's locked. Um, oh, this is a really difficult decision. Do you want to go for the door he doesn't want to go through? Or the door that he does want to go through? If the vampire likes the door, does that mean that I won't? Or does that mean that he's going to summon help and I should go through there? I don't know. I don't know. I cannot even begin to fathom this decision. So let's just go for the one he's not going through. Because let's assume that he was going to find some vampire chums. Oh dear. The vampire's eyes light up as you open the door. Although you didn't know it, this was just what he was hoping for. Really, I'm very gullible. Very, very gullible. As the light from the room falls on the faces of the vampire's two undead slaves, their eyes open and they step out of the cupboard towards you. I don't know whether having a cupboard full of zombies is fancy or slovenly. I feel like it's one of the two. The hideous, grey-green, decaying faces of two zombies follow you as you step away from them. Attack! Attack! yells the vampire. They obey. Resolve your combat with them one at a time. Now the first zombie has a skill of seven and a stamina of six. The second has a skill of six and a stamina of six. I have a skill of ten now, so I'm really hoping I can put these shufflers down without too much problem. I'm going to roll some dice. I have stabbed those zombies up good and proper. No damage taken. So we get to see what happens next. As his slaves fall dead to the floor, the vampire rises to his feet, ready to finish you off. You quickly hold up your garlic and he stands his ground. But what can you do now? You may either try the other door or head back for the entrance. We'll try the other door. You hurl the garlic at the vampire and dash for the door. He shrieks, trying to brush off the garlic as you fling it open. It opens into a cupboard, but rather an unusual one. The back wall has slid aside, revealing a secret passageway. The vampire is rising to his feet again, so you decide to risk what lies ahead and step through into the passageway, slamming both doors behind you. The passageway is narrow and only the faintest glow lights your way. After a short distance you come to a staircase which leads downwards. Slowly and cautiously you go down the stairs. After a dozen or so steps you reach another landing. The stairs continue downwards at the landing. and You may either follow them or you may try a door in the wall of the landing. Well, let's try the old door, shall we? Oh, we're in a secret passage. I love a secret passage. I was reared... On Enid Blyton, secret passages are the best. The door opens and you find yourself in a small room. There is another door leading off the room, but in front of you is a strange sight which catches your attention. A shimmering haze seems to be hanging on the wall, almost like a curtain of sparkling water. You step up to investigate and gingerly hold out your fingers to touch it. Your finger passes right through. Plucking up your courage, you poke your head into the haze. That seems like a Poor decision, but hopefully it'll be fine. On the other side, you realise what has happened. Your head has emerged through a large mirror into a reception room. On the wall opposite is a huge mural of a country scene, and standing in the middle of the room are a table and six chairs. The sound of voices outside the door startles you, and you draw your head back. Will you wait until the way is clear and step through the mirror? Try the other door in this little room behind the mirror, or go back down the stairs? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, let's just wait until the coast is clear and step through the mirror. I feel like 
if life gives you a magic mirror, you're kind of duty-bound to step through it. You wait until there is silence in the drawing room and step carefully back through the mirror into the room. The coast is clear. You walk over to the door and leave the room. You leave the room cautiously and look around in the hallway. There is no one in sight. There is a door to your left, which you may try. There is a door to your left, which you may try. Or you can turn right and follow the hallway round. Let's try the door. The door is locked and you will not be able to open it. You turn round and follow the hallway. That drawing room wasn't doing anything to dispel the image that this is actually a cut price hotel and part-time conference centre. The hallway widens. You walk across to another hallway and continue in the direction you are walking until you reach the two doors opposite each other. Do you want to try the door on the right or the door on the left? I will try the door on the right for a change. The door opens and you enter the kitchen. The room is empty and immaculately tidy, with all the knives, pots and pans hanging in neat rows along the walls. A double sink is set under a window next to a large cooker and fridge. A great square table stands in the centre of the room. There are two doors. One leads outside and the other looks like a pantry door. A large bunch of keys lies on top of the cooker. Do you want to try the back door leading outside? Try the other door or grab the bunch of keys on the cooker? I mean, we want to get out, don't we? The obvious thing to do is try the back door leading outside. So let's do that. I would hate to miss out on the way out simply because I was too paranoid. So yeah, we'll try the back door. You step over to the back door and grasp the handle. The handle turns, but the door will not open. It is locked and the key is nowhere about, or is it? Do you want to grab the bunch of keys on the cooker or try the other door? They're so tempting, aren't they, those keys? I mean, obvious trap is obvious, but again, I can't give up the opportunity to grab the keys. You pick up the bunch of keys and start to flick through them. Ah! You scream loudly and drop the keys on the floor. They're red hot and you've severely burnt your hand. You were using your weapon hand and must lose three stamina and two skill points. That's grim. But if you wish, you can test your luck and a lucky roll means you weren't using your weapon hand after all and you only lose one stamina point. So we will definitely test our luck. And with a five, we are lucky. Luck now down to ten. So we lose one stamina point, taking us down to six. I'm very much enjoying this way of giving you more options on using your luck. I think particularly given that you've got this fear mechanic as well, I think de-emphasizing the role of luck to an extent is a, a good plan. Your fears are confirmed when the door opens. The noise has attracted the attention of some mysterious friends of the Earl of Druma. Four men enter the room, all dressed in white gowns and wearing goat's heads to conceal their faces. They are armed with knives and lengths of wood. It would be foolish to resist them. Grabbing your wrists, they take you downstairs into the cellars. There you enter a room in which there are four prison cells. Three are already occupied, but the fourth is empty. You will be detained here at the Earl's pleasure. Your adventure has ended. Well, my poor life choices have inevitably caught up with me. I think it's a little bit bizarre that it made me go through the rigmarole of testing my luck only to send me to an instant kill page. But hey, it certainly raised my hopes before dashing them. So that's kind of clever, I guess. Again, using the need to go and find the next paragraph to... Uh, generate tension. So by invoking the sausage finger bookmark rule we will rewind time to entering the kitchen and instead of trying the back door or grabbing the obviously trapped bunch of keys like a muppet we'll try the other door and see how we get on. I mean it's the pantry I'm kind of hoping there might be you know some cold cuts or something that I can scarf down to get back a few stamina points because my stamina is also very low. You reach for the door handle and open it wide, but the sight that greets you makes you step back aghast. Inside the pantry, standing motionless, is a hideous figure in tattered clothes. Its face and hands are in a state of semi-decay, and the odour of death fills your nostrils. Can't help but think there's more hygienic places to store such a creature than a pantry. Like bread, milk, rotting animated corpse... 
Yeah, these are things that shouldn't really be together. Your intrusion has woken it. Its eyes open and a hissing noise comes from its throat. A long tongue flashes out at you and the creature steps forward. Add two fear points. So we're up to fear seven. We're over halfway through our fear total. You must fight the ghoul, but you may grab a knife from the wall to use as a weapon. And that's kind of cool. Even if you didn't get the weapon earlier, you get a second chance in the kitchen when there are knives about. That's pretty good. The ghoul has a skill of eight and a stamina of seven. Am I going to roll some dice? Ooh, uh, if it hits me twice, then a special event triggers. So, uh... The ghoul managed to take two stamina points off me. I also used a point of luck to do an extra point of damage so that I'd miss out on one round of combat. So my luck is now nine and my stamina is now four. But I have managed to defeat it. As the ghoul slumps to the floor, it falls against a rack of pans hanging on the wall. The pans clatter to the floor. The noise is deafening. Have you been heard? Turns out you have been heard because it just sends us to the same death page we got sent to before. So that's possibly the shortest use of the sausage-fingered bookmark, I think, so far. We've learned something very important, though. Don't go in the kitchen. If you're playing through House of Hell, don't go in the kitchen. It is just a series of deadly traps designed to murder you. I'm going to be back with some closing thoughts in just a few seconds, so stay tuned for that. Okay, first things first. I'm recording this several days later than originally planned, partly because life got in my way, but partly because I wanted to try and finish House of Hell before finalising my show notes, and it took way longer than I had anticipated, because House of Hell is brilliantly, fascinatingly hard. I'm going to be diving deep into the specifics of why I think this is one of the best entries in the fighting fantasy canon, but in simple terms, if you get a chance to play this book, and you have even a passing interest in horror, then I absolutely wholeheartedly recommend it. It is a thing of macabre beauty. But you don't have to take my word for it. Well, you do, but you're going to have to listen to me try and justify that opinion at some length. Beginning at the beginning, this is another book that first appeared in truncated form in the pages of Warlock magazine. You may remember that Caverns of the Snow Witch, the preceding fighting fantasy book, also started life in the same way, but where Caverns essentially added new material whilst keeping the short adventure that it was based on largely intact, House of Hell was comprehensively revised with a completely different layout and a significant increase in difficulty. I would suggest that this process of iterative drafting is probably why House of Hell feels so deep and so complex. Had Caverns of the Snow Witch been approached in the same way, I'm sure it would have felt more polished and less kind of weirdly exhausting. One thing that House of Hell has from the very first sentence is a sense of atmosphere, which I found sucked me into the game world really effectively. I'm a big horror fan, a very big horror fan, and those early descriptive passages drew me in and they never let me go. It's probably why there's a relative dearth of silly comments in the playthrough, at least by my own very silly standards. The book does a great job of serving up classic gothic horror staples that just made it hard for me to focus on anything other than my own enjoyment of the text. And they come one after the other, and in the fear mechanic, it creates a streamlined system for making the horrors have a dramatic heft. The slow increase of fear towards a sudden death from sheer fright, that is fantastic and adds the bare minimum of additional complexity to the book. It's even balanced that by reducing the reliance on luck rolls. I got the impression that Jackson would have maybe liked to have done away with luck entirely and replaced it with fear, but presumably they felt they had to keep the core system intact. Now the fact that you don't have to roll your fear means that there's no chance of dying of fright early doors, although there is a random element in terms of how much fear you can stand. 
It's something that gradually becomes more and more of a problem as you make your way through the Haunted Mansion. It's not shy of handing the fear points out either. Even the optimum path has many occasions for terror, which, in a house of hell, that's entirely as it should be. This brings me on to my next sort of general point. This is a book that is playing quite metatextually with horror. It's a book, but it isn't trying to give you the experience of reading a horror novel. Instead, I think it's trying to give you the experience of watching a horror film. And as part of that, it creates an interesting separation between your character as portrayed and you, the reader. At times, it's happy to tell you things that your character won't be aware of in such a way that I can often picture how you'd go about editing it on screen. The reveal of the vampire sitting in the chair is a great example of that. The fact that there's a chair in front of the fire isn't even mentioned when the room description is sketched in. You get the noise first, and then the reveal that there's someone, someone mysterious, sitting by the fire, just as if you are panning across to it with a camera. It also gives the reader the opportunity to think about how their character might react, rather than looking at it purely in terms of utility. I think that's what enabled me to enjoy some of the grisly deaths I went through during my various playthroughs. The prose gave me enough of a sense of separation that I could sit back and enjoy it rather than feel aggrieved. The illustrations really help in setting the tone. Um, the quality of the artwork is high throughout and there's a commendable focus on the most frightening aspects of the world. Various ghosts, monsters and zombies all get characterful illustrations that complement the simple but effective prose. This is very well written to capture the essence of a horror movie with a focus on the visual presentation, which gives the artist a lot to work with. Unlike some books where the art sometimes seems very random and even unconnected to the story, House of Hell attracted a fair degree of notoriety at the time and has even been very mildly censored in more recent editions. While from an adult perspective the thrills, they're tame enough that anyone with a taste for horror isn't going to be remotely perturbed, there's no doubt this book raises interesting questions about the age of the intended audience. I certainly read this at a very young age, but I think I'd already read some Stephen King novels which were available from my junior school library for reasons that completely escaped me. There's some strong material for the average preteen, especially in the early 80s. Vampires and ghosts are all very well, but there's a human sacrifice and a torture chamber in the basement that are nastier by far than their core audience may have been used to in previous fighting fantasy books. What's fascinating to me playing through as an adult is that it's referencing cinema so much more than literature. I think a fair few kids my age, eight, nine, might have been reading books intended for adults, but the majority wouldn't have been watching the films that House of Hell was more obviously drawing on. So this could well have been one of their first experiences of horror as a visual medium. It also teaches the very important lesson that rich people are evil. People outside the UK may not be aware of just how weird and unsettling our upper classes are. They are notoriously strange and insular and rarely associate with anyone outside of their own sect, which is basically people who haven't had to work since the Norman Conquest in 1066. House of Hell captures that sense of crumbling mansions filled with dirty secrets extremely well, but without being too harrowing. Another thing that really helps the atmosphere is starting without a weapon and without any provisions to restore your stamina. It heightens the sense of vulnerability. And speaking as a vegan, I have never been so pleased to see a meat knife in all my life as I was in that playthrough. Without potions and provisions, your stamina feels much more precious, and that means that the combat encounters are used carefully and sparingly. Once you've found yourself a weapon, most of the zombies and the other monsters, they're not much of a challenge, but that doesn't mean that you feel safe. Every lucky hit they get chips away at your life, and there are few chances to regain stamina. 
Obviously, I've got a running gag that fish and chips are medicinal in the fighting fantasy universe, but if you're feeling a bit stabbed in House of Hell, then brandy, that's what you want to take the edge off it. That's sort of more realistic if you squint a bit and apply the logic of a 19th century quack doctor. But even so, chances to gain stamina are very, very few and far between. In terms of map design, House of Hell is nothing short of genius. You don't really get a proper sense of how cleverly this is constructed simply by listening to my playthrough. There's a couple of points where I begin to grasp the outer edges of how unusual and wonderfully intricate the House of Hell is, but I'm really not getting to the meat of it. Since then, I spent hours poring over this book, trying to tease out its secrets, and it's almost certainly the greatest single marriage of design to subject matter I've encountered so far in the fighting fantasy canon. The only other book that comes close is my all-time favourite, Citadel of Chaos, also coincidentally by Steve Jackson. I described that book as a beautiful Chinese puzzle box, which is true, but House of Hell takes it to the next level. The only reason that House of Hell doesn't take its spot as my new favourite is that House of Hell only has a single correct solution. If you don't do everything right, you'll fail, whereas Citadel of Chaos had multiple ways of resolving each and every encounter so that even if you made it through, you could go back and work out how to go through it without losing any stamina, which was completely doable. House of Hell is a much crueler mistress. There's a moment right at the start where you can choose to go round the back of the house to look through a window. That's optional, but otherwise everything needs to go exactly right to get to the end. This means that if you play through House of Hell, you will fail over and over again. But each failure reveals another facet of how meticulously it's been designed. There's the fact that the house is simultaneously laid out exactly like you would expect a mansion to be laid out. Bedrooms up top, dining rooms and reception rooms below, and a large rambling cellar. Yet at the same time, it resists easy navigation because it's full of traps and tricks that send you from one point in the house to another, in a way deliberately designed to disorient you. Gradually, as you explore the relatively small confines of the mansion, you find new ways of getting between the floors and discover unexpected connections. If you get drugged unconscious during the dinner with Lord Drumare, as I did in the playthrough, you come back to life tied up in a room and have to use broken glass to cut yourself free. If you explore the upstairs thoroughly, you can come back to the same room, force your way in to find a broken window and a length of knotted rope, which the text never explicitly tells you that you left there because there's an alternative version where you do the dinner perfectly and never get tied up. The room makes sense in both alternate timelines. Similarly, if you don't do the dinner perfectly, the room in which you were to spend the night is simply a locked door. Only if you spent the early part of the night in it will you recognise it as where you started from should you encounter it again. The multiple timelines cross over each other in obscure ways. I escaped from the vampire down the secret passage and went through a magic window into a reception room on the ground floor. I thought nothing of it, yet if you play the book out differently, you take a very different route to the ground floor, which enables you to go into that room from a different direction and get a very different description of the room because the voices which you hear are not there to distract you from searching the room. You can then enter the secret passage through the mirror from the opposite side and that turns out to be crucial. At points you will get a clue that a man in grey may be able to help you and the book turns up no less than three of them in different locations. Two of them provide information which proves helpful and the other will also tell you things but will also shiv you when you aren't looking which is problematic. Find any one of them on the first playthrough and you'll feel pleased with yourself for having made sense of the clue provided earlier but only later will you discover there's something stranger going on and that only one of these figures in grey is really the one you need. There's no way out of the kitchen, we discovered that. All roads there lead to disaster, but if you play through it multiple times, you might start to realise that if you want to avoid going into the kitchen, the only other option is a door opposite, which is locked. 
Perhaps there might be some way into that room if only you could find a key. The multiple paths to death serve a meta-purpose. They're providing you with some entertaining new ways to die, but at the same time they're subtly highlighting a potential way out which is currently inaccessible to you. Scorpion Swamp had a design where you could enter and exit many encounters from different directions, but there it only tracks whether you've been through an encounter before. House of Hell gives you subtly different encounters depending on how you came to them, and that's a big part of what makes this book so difficult to map. You can find a reasonable stab at the layout of the mansion online, but what they struggle to convey is the shifting options and timelines contained within. It's something that's supremely appropriate to the feeling the book is trying to convey, that of being trapped somewhere confusing and frightening and struggling to get out. Like any good horror protagonist, you didn't choose this adventure, it chose you. And, and if you defeat the diabolic Lord Drumer, it'll be because fate left you no other option. For all these opaque design choices, Jackson has made some quality of life decisions that will make some elements of the journey a little easier. You have to do the dinner party perfectly to succeed, but puzzling your way through those early segments means there's some enjoyment to be had on subsequent playthroughs, so that by the time you're closing in on the right solution, you've actually simultaneously been optimising the start. That's really clever. Giving the bedrooms names makes it easy to track what encounter lies within each one, even when you're moving around the landing in the opposite direction. Even someone like me, who flatly refuses to map, especially when I'm recording, I found that jotting a little note of what was in each room felt like a good idea and it felt very easy. It didn't feel like I was being asked to do anything complex. There's also plenty of clues to be found by talking to people who live, or perhaps we should say exist, within the house. This is one of the most chatty game books I've ever seen. Conversation is quite hard to do in a game book. They can often feel forced, or they can eat a lot of paragraphs without offering too much in return. Jackson finds some clever ways round that to constrain the time you spend with people, and it's all well written enough that it flows quite smoothly. Jackson uses these characters to create clue trails, and he even manages to find a way of laying false clues that have a meaning within the fiction and lead you on towards the right one. So, there's a room protected by a password. When you arrive at the door, you're given four options, and of course, only one of them is right. The clever thing is that none of the other options are exactly wrong. Two of them are both passwords that the villain used in the past, and by following the clue trail, you can discover documents divulging that the first wrong answer is no longer secure, and therefore the password needs to be changed. A hint for an alternative is suggested, but since then, the password has been changed again because that password too is no longer secure. Crucially, only someone currently living in the house can give you the clue to the current password. That's very clever design because it makes total sense once you discover the right answer. And it also deepens the sense of a place that has a history both horrific and also mundane and bureaucratic. The last thing I want to highlight is that the only reason this works so well is because of the particular design of a gamebook. A gamebook is not the same as a text adventure in another form. The mere act of flipping through a gamebook will show you artwork from other areas of the environment. And if you make a note of paragraphs or even just vaguely where things occur in the book, you can flip back to check that you've understood something in an earlier section, which is often very hard to do in adventure games. You have access to every area of the game in a way that I think no other medium really allows. Several times when I was playing through, I found myself using the artwork to clue myself in, that there were areas I hadn't yet found the access to. And that's what pushed me to explore in different directions. In the end, I had to cheat to win, but the simple act of drilling deeply into the structure of each area to try and fully grasp how they worked was so unbelievably rewarding. I've put, as I said at the beginning, hours into this book, and I still feel there's more to discover. And I'm still surprised by the sheer thought that's gone into every decision. I cannot think of another game book that does the same thing so elegantly. It's probably too hard. I think it is too hard. But 
it doesn't actually spoil the experience for me. Paradoxically, all it does is make me want to understand it even more deeply. And with that, we are done. If you're enjoying what I do and you choose to support me on Patreon, please know that I am profoundly grateful for any and all support. It's a time-consuming business producing this podcast, so any financial backing does make a big difference. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com hjdoom. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time I get weird and obsessive about adventure game books designed for children. Until then, be kind, stay safe, and I'll see you again soon.